0: Father, we do want to be your ambassadors here on this planet. And we want to, Lord, represent you rightly in everything that we say and do. And I would ask, Lord, that you would use your word this morning as your spirit works in us to accomplish that in our lives. That we would be ambassadors for the Lord Jesus. That we would be um, encouragements to one another. And that we would help each other in our walk with Christ. Lord, may your word be clear. Help me to speak, Lord, only what you would have me say. May your Spirit help us to understand and apply it. And we would ask in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, it's interesting that that uh, last song that we sang, uh, Oh, 4,000 Tongues, it's interesting we sung that because that's going to be the topic of our time together this morning, our tongue, our speech, what we say. Because, you know, if there's anything that... uh, has been used for good or for not it has been our tongue right we have used it uh, just a minute ago to sing praises to god to declare goodness the goodness of god we heard testimony of his work in people's lives so we've used our tongue for good but it also has been used at times as an instrument of evil i mean how often have these words come out in an argument can't you do anything right you're a failure you're you're worthless Or, why can't you be more like your sister? Or, I've never had these problems before I knew you. Or perhaps you've heard, I I don't ever want to be around you. You are such a burden. Or, I wish you were never born. Why did I ever marry you? Or, I hate you. You make me sick. You know, we've heard it said, sticks and stones may break our bones, but what? Names will never hurt me. Whoever first came up with that is an idiot. Okay, I just blew it there probably. That guy's probably dead, so he doesn't know. Oh, but we know that's not true, right? I mean, come on. Sticks and stones do hurt, but words can hurt even more. We know that is true. Words cut deeper than any knife. They bruise more than any club. They can penetrate further inside of us than any bullet. Right? Because a fist can only wound the body, but a word can wound the soul. From the hurtful words I just said, I can feel the mood drop a little bit in here. Those were harsh things. Those are harsh words. Perhaps you've heard them spoken to you. Or perhaps you may have been one that has said those things to someone else. Words cut deep and they leave lasting wounds. I, I'm amazed at times I'll talk to some of our older saints and sometimes they will bring up things that they still remember that still affect them even though they were said by their parents 50 or 60 or 70 years ago. It's amazing. I, I remember as a kid, uh, I was pretty chubby. I still am, but I was even more chubby when I was younger. And I, I remember my, even my extended family, how they would tease me and call me names. And it hurt. It hurt. Our words can bring great injury. But you know, our, our words can also bring great hope and encouragement too. Proverbs fifteen twenty three says, A man has joy in an apt answer, and how delightful is a timely word. And if there's anything that can tear us apart as a church or as a family, it's what we say to one another. So Paul, as he's talking about walking in love, does not leave out the fact that importance of our speech. In fact, as we read this passage in a minute, as we look at it together, we're going to see just how many times and how many places Paul brings in this whole idea of what we say to one another, as as how we walk in love. And so with that, if you could please, if you're not there yet, turn to Ephesians 4 and stand with me as we look into God's word. Ephesians 4 will be beginning again in verse 25. God has spoken through His servant Paul, saying these words, Therefore, and as I read these, look for how many things are connected to our speech. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. Let him who steals steal no longer, but rather let him labor, performing with his own hands what is good, in order that he may have something to share with him who has need. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. But be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other just as God and Christ has also forgiven you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Amen. You may be seated. You know, in going through this text, did you notice how many times Paul says something here that's connected to our speech? Verse 25, he says, Laying aside falsehood, speak truth. Each one to his neighbor. In verse 26, be angry and do not sin. And what's one of the primary ways that uh, we might express that anger to someone else? Through our words, right? Verse 28 says, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. Verse 31, put away slander. Or we didn't read it, but just a few verses later in chapter 5, verse 4, Paul talks about that there must be no vulgar speech or foolish talk or dirty jokes. Our communication is a significant part of how we relate to one another, isn't it? It's a key way that we interact. And so this morning we're going to focus our attention on what Paul has to say about biblical communication. We're going to talk about our talk. But before we do that, I do want to briefly look at one other aspect of walking in love that Paul brings up in verse 28. And that is this issue of stealing. He says there, He who steals must steal no longer, but rather let him labor performing with his own hands what is good so that he may have something to share with him who has need I know for many of us when we think of stealing we we probably think maybe of a of a bank heist or or perhaps of of somebody who is uh, stealing a car or maybe taking some money out of a wallet or perhaps maybe that charlatan TV preacher always asking for your money that's maybe what you have a picture in your mind when you think about stealing but actually We can rob, we can steal without even going through the act, right? We can steal in many different ways. We need to take to heart what Paul has to say here about theft because you could be the worst thief in the world and never have actually stolen a thing. And I say that because if you remember back in Matthew 5 when Jesus was talking about adultery and said you could be guilty of adultery even if you never commit the act, simply by lusting after someone in your heart. Or Jesus said, you can be guilty of the act of murder, even if you never carry it out physically, simply by being angry in your heart towards someone else. And in the same way, we can be thieves at heart, right? What's at the root of stealing? Greed? Covetousness? Right? Right? So we can be stealing all through the day and maybe never actually lifting something up or never actually taking something from someone else physically. So this whole issue of, of stealing is important for all of us because all of us struggle with this issue of greed at times, do we not? All of us perhaps have that lingering eye looking over at the thing. I wish I had that. Or how come that person got to have that thing and I didn't? Come on, be honest. Walking through the mall, looking at you. Know, every time I go by exotic sports cars, oh, I'd love to have that Lamborghini. And it's the color I like too. Actually, I wouldn't because the insurance would be unbelievable. But right. It's that it's that desire to have or want something that turns into this this lust or this overpowering coveting. And so Paul says the way to deal with that is to deal with the issue of the heart. Right. Because that's where this problem exists. It begins in the heart. And Paul says, you know what, to deal with this issue of feeling, you need to Actually, labor and work so that you may give. Pursue the the opposite. Pursue the righteous act that will deal with that problem in your heart. The cure to greed and coveting isn't just to suppress the desire, but it is to cultivate giving. John Piper said this. He said, You can live to have or you can live to give. Which is it for you? Do you live to have? Or do you have a mindset of living to give? You know, I... I am so encouraged by the early church. One of the first things that they did, one of the first expressions of their faith, we read in Acts 2.45, is they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing with them all, sharing them with all as anyone might have need. That's a pretty radical response to the gospel, isn't it? They were looking actively for needs among them, for specific needs, physical needs, ways that they could help. And then they would sell what they had or they would labor in order to provide for that need. And that, Paul says, if that's your focus, that's one of the great ways to deal with the whole struggle of coveting and discontentment in your heart. Ask the Lord to help you and show you ways to do that. And then, Paul, what he does is, after talking about this whole way, we can be a physical blessing to one another with our hands, he then turns attention in verse 29, to how we can be a spiritual blessing to one another with our mouths. Paul says in verse four, or chapter four, verse 29, "Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, that it may give grace to those who hear." That passage is uh, what our family calls the Carnes family vacation verse. I'm serious. We actually recite that together before we leave on a trip with one another. Because if there's anything dangerous, it is to put a group of people, especially a family, in close proximity to one another for a lengthy period of time. And so we say this verse together just as a reminder of our words and how important they are, even in the little things as we're spending time with one another. Because words are significant. How does God reveal himself? Through words, right? In fact, what do we call this book? The Word of God. Jesus in John 1 is described as the Word. Word is so critical to communication. We interact with one another through our words, through our speech. In fact, it is what distinguishes us from every other creature that God has made on this planet, right? In fact, as the animals were parading by Adam and and they were going by, what was it that Adam noticed? He was alone, right? How did that come across to him? Because he wasn't alone. There were other physical beings in his presence, right? But as they're walking by, hey, hey, how's it going? Right? Hey, hey, how are you doing? Woof! I won't do any anymore. Uh, right? They couldn't talk until Satan decided to enter a serpent and then used words to do great damage. But Adam realized he was unique because there was no one talking the same talk with him. Because people, people have the gift of speech, the gift of words. And again, it is vital to our existence. In fact, I was looking up this week, uh, various encyclopedias indicate there are over 500,000 English words. And we use thousands of them every day. In fact, I'm going to probably use somewhere over 6,000 words in this time that we have together. And you're saying, yeah, I know. (laughs) But we all use words, in fact, some of us more than others. Um, One husband was pointing this out to his wife one day from an article he was reading from the newspaper. He read to her how men use about 15,000 words a day and women 30,000. And so his wife thought for a moment and said, it's because we have to repeat ourselves. (laughs) But wait, the husband then replied, what? What? You know, whatever the actual numbers are. And I tried to find that out, but there's, there's no reliable source out there that indicates, you know. Whatever they are, we all use words. We all speak to one another. It's how we exist with each other. It's how we live. And we can use those words to be weapons that cause great damage. Or we can use them to bring about great healing. Proverbs 18.21 says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue. And God wants us to use it to bring life. In Ephesians four twenty nine and 30, they lay out for us the blueprint of God-honoring communication, of the kind of speech that would give life, that would give healing, that would build up. And here we can see again the format Paul takes with this topic as he gives a negative command and then a positive command and then the reason for these commands. So to have God-honoring communication, there's three things we need to remember here. One is to ditch destructive dialogue. The second is to supply strengthening speech. And thirdly, give up grieving God. Paul said in the beginning of verse twenty nine, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. Now that word unwholesome, I think some translations have in there a corrupt or evil, foul. It's a word saproth that was used sapros, that was used in ancient times to talk about rotting wood or rancid fish, or flowers that had withered, or something that had no worth. The New Testament was used to describe a tree that had no fruit, or a fish that was bad or unusable to sell. And the word carries the idea. Imagine yourself, you go home today, and uh, maybe you've got a fridge out in the garage or something, and, and you open up that refrigerator, and all of a sudden, boom, you get hit by this this amazing odor. And you realize that, you know, a fish you left in there five weeks ago had finally turned rancid. Yeah, some of you went, ugh. Because you know what I'm talking about, right? That's what should come to your mind when you see unwholesome. That there is speech that can have the same impact. Now, many people confine this word unwholesome to uh, the use of curse words or sexually explicit or inappropriate language or harsh speech or, or foul language or dirty jokes. And those indeed would be rancid speech, but but it's broader than that. And we we can know that by looking at what Paul says is the opposite later in verse 29. He says right after that, But only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, that it may give grace to those who hear. And what he's saying there is uh, unwholesome words are rancid words. We need to be doing the opposite, which are words that build up and edify. So that tells us that unwholesome words are corrupt words that aren't just dirty words. They aren't just words that would get your mouth washed out with soap. But they're any word that you might speak that would tear down a fellow believer. Any speech that you might give that does not bring grace. Anything that you might say that would harm the listener, that might tempt them into sin or might cause them to say a corrupt word as well. All of those are corrupt speech. All of those are unwholesome words sapros words destroy the body of christ rather than strengthen it they derail a believer in their walk and so we're commanded don't let any of these kinds of corrupt or destructive words even come out of your mouth we're not to allow them even to escape our lips and paul says here notice let each uh, let no unwholesome word singular every word a single word can bring damage can be rancid you remember what Jesus said in Matthew twelve thirty six? He said there that, I tell you, every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for in the day of judgment. For by your words you'll be justified, and by your words you'll be condemned. That is sobering. How many words have we spoken in our lifetime? Thousands of words each day. And how many of those words... If we were to play the tape back, how many of you would like them to be uh, blown over on the sound system here right now? I I wouldn't. Really, I wouldn't. We need to give more thought and attention to our words. And we need to treat every word that comes out of our mouths with great care as if we were carrying a loaded weapon. In fact, I read this week of a man who uh, was trying to scare his friend's hiccups away by pointing a, a gun at him. And he thought the gun, gun was full of dummy it was dumb, was loaded with dummy bolts but it wasn't and he pulled the trigger and the man died on the way to the hospital tragic and and we know from, from weapons 101 right you always assume a gun is loaded right you never assume otherwise and you always treat it that way we need to do the same thing with our words We need to recognize that our mouth is always loaded. And we need to be careful and attentive. And this probably isn't the first message that you've heard on speech. I'm sure if you've read any uh, Christian book on marriage or parenting or conflict, there's a chapter or several chapters on communication. I am willing to bet that many of you have probably heard a message before on communication. Or been part of a, a talk or or some kind of a, a, a conference or something like that that's talked about it. But I'm willing to bet something. I'm willing to bet within the next 24 hours, maybe for some of us we'll stretch it to, to 25 hours, but I'm willing to bet that all of us, including myself, in the next day or two are going to say something we shouldn't. Something we'll regret. Something that is rotten. We will at some point... Point our mouth at someone else and shoot. Right? You know the circumstance. Your toddler refuses to obey you after the umpteenth time that you've told them not to do that. Mothers are smiling right now because you know what I'm talking about. Right? You've been correcting them all day and they still keep doing it. What are you tempted to do in that moment? Or maybe you've had a long day at work and you come home to find two of your kids yelling at each other. Really? Come on. Or perhaps... You've been working hard cooking and cleaning all day and only to have your husband come home and complain about something that didn't get done. Or maybe your teenager ignores you or speaks disrespectfully. Or your sibling comes into your room while you're trying to talk on the phone in private. Or your parents want to talk to you about your report card right now. Or perhaps somebody in the foyer ignores you blatantly as you walk by and and say hello to them. I don't know. There are many circumstances we might be in where we are tempted at that moment, to give unwholesome speech, right? And there are many situations that we give in, that we give in. And we know better, though, right? But Why do we still do it? I mean, you're going to hear this message today and be tempted, like I said, perhaps even right afterwards, when you pick your kids up from the nursery. I don't, I don't know. But you, some of you are going to give in. I know I'm going to give in. Why? What's the problem? I know better. What Jesus said in Luke 6:45, his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. Right? When people don't meet my expectations, when they don't give me what I want, when I'm hurt or offended or inconvenienced or my agenda or my desires or my demands are not being met, when these things don't happen, when I don't get what I want, I then turn to my words as my weapon. When the universe of Tim is invaded by something I don't like, I declare war with my speech. We all do that. We all do it. And what you say is really just telling who you are and telling what you desire. Paul Tripp says it like this. He says, Word problems reveal heart problems. The people and situations around us do not make us say what we say. They are only the occasion for our hearts to reveal themselves in words. And, brothers and sisters, that's really why communication techniques, in and of themselves, don't work long term. You could have the best communication counselor in the world sit with you for weeks and weeks and months and show you all the great methods and techniques to build up healthy and and good communication. But those methods, by themselves, won't bring about lasting change. Because the problem isn't the method, is it? It's the heart of the speaker. The way I speak to my wife or my children or to you isn't determined by a technique or a method it's determined by my agenda and whether or not that agenda is God's or my own Ephesians 4:29 says I will ditch destructive speech if I care about God's agenda more than I do mine and I will supply strengthening speech look at the middle of verse 29 But only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, that it may give grace to those who hear. I find it interesting, verse 29 here, God doesn't say, hey, stop talking. Just don't say a word. Keep quiet. He wants us to speak. He wants us to communicate. He wants us to talk. He wants us to use our words, right? Because he says only such a word. So he's not saying don't talk, but it's how we talk, right? Because God uses our words to both save and sanctify the good news of Jesus Christ coming to earth to die for sinners so that they might know him and know the one who sent him. That message comes how? Through what we tell people from what God has said, right? What does Romans 10 say? How will they hear? They need to hear the words of the gospel in order to be saved, right? God brings the message of truth through words and through speech. He uses us just like he did Philip with the Ethiopian eunuch. He was reading Isaiah 53, right? And Philip comes along and then explains it to him. Uses words to bring him the gospel. People don't grow just by not hearing destructive speech. We use our words too to help build one another up. God intends for us to do that. He wants us to use our speech to save and to sanctify and it's amazing in God's design, I, just, I find this amazing, that an instrument that we would use as a butcher's knife, God would desire to transform us to use it as a surgeon's scalpel. The very vial that we have that we use to pour out poison, God desires that we use it to pour out healing ointment. The mouth that at times we use to, and have a full of filth is a, is a means of grace that God desires to use in one another's lives. And I, I just think that is so kind of God to do that. To include us in that process because he doesn't need us, right? He could do a much better job speaking directly. He knows exactly what needs to be said and how to say it. But he includes us to speak the gospel, to speak encouraging words and and words that build up one another so that we could help one another become more like Christ. And to me, that is God's kindness in action, that he would want us to participate in that process and experiencing the joy of helping somebody else to love Christ more through what we tell them. I don't know about you, but those times I've experienced that where somebody comes to you and you, you speak to them words of grace that they need and it impacts them. And they tell you maybe a month, month or years later they say, you know, when you told that to me, I really needed that. That is encouraging, and God wants us to be encouraged and use us in one another's lives to do that. Key word here in verse 29 is that word edification. Some translations have building up. Paul's used this word several times before in Ephesians, uh, in Ephesians 2:21. He says, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a temple in the Lord. In verse 22, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Ephesians 4.12, Paul said, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Verse 16 of chapter 4, he said, from whom the whole body causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. This idea of building is just, just like in construction. You're, you're building a building and you're, you're working in it and, and taking its friend's foundation and, and building it up. And that's the picture here. It's a building that's to be used in service of the Lord. And our words are to be devoted to that process of helping one another to be built up as individuals and as a body. You see, most approaches to solving communication problems don't work in the long term because they have the wrong goal, they don't have the goal of building up, but some other goal. My goal, as I speak to you, my goal is our goal as we interact with one another and use our speech, is not just to have words that are positive or words that build some compromise between us, or, or words that, that may f- make you feel that you've been heard. Those, those are helpful things, but, but those aren't the goal. The goal isn't that, that, that we would be just encouraging though that can be important at times, the ultimate purpose of any communication is to help one another be followers of Christ. That's the main reason God's given you a tongue, to exalt Him and to help others do the same. It's the Great Commission, isn't it? Remember the first part of the commission? Ed mentioned that a minute ago in the baptisms. The first part of the commission is baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What's the second part? Teaching them to obey all that Christ commanded. Teaching involves communication. Our communication is meant to be a form of discipleship, to help disciple one another, to be more like Christ, to, to learn what He has commanded us, and then carry those teachings out. And Paul has said in verse 29, "...as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, that it may give grace to those who hear." And the need of the moment is whatever that person is lacking... In their walk with Jesus. That person that you're talking to. The need of the moment could be encouragement or prayer or rebuke or counseling or help or empathy or doctrine. Whatever is required to help them fellowship with Christ. The need of the moment may be a a brother or sister who, who needs doctrine or clarity. They're struggling with an issue. They don't know how to apply the scriptures or know the scriptures to apply So the need of the moment may be you coming alongside and and helping them to understand, bringing the word of God within that circumstance. Edifying speech means to be speaking scriptural truth to one another. And all of us can use others in our lives to come alongside us and give us biblical counsel, can't we? Right? We don't all have this wired. (laughs) We need others in our lives too to help us understand and apply the word of God. Sometimes the need of the moment is to edify somebody by admonishing a brother or sister who may be on a path of sin or wandering near that path, and to build them up would require us to say something. To build them up would require us to to bring a word of rebuke or admonishment. Because as you're building a building and building it up, sometimes there are things that aren't done right need to be torn down and redone again. Right, right, Lloyd, you're in construction. Sometimes we need to, to rebuild. And that's the truth in the case of our walk with Christ as a body. Sometimes we need to have somebody come alongside us. And it's the most edifying thing they can do is to say, Hey, Tim, there's something I need to talk to you about. There's an area in your life that I think would be good for you to work on. That's edifying. That is helpful. That is building up the body of Christ. Sometimes the need of the moment is indeed encouragement. We've been beat up by sin or trial or, or some circumstance that's come in our lives. We're, we're weary. We're broken. We need somebody just to come alongside and say, how can I help? How can I pray for you? What can I do to encourage you? We need that. We need to be built up with encouraging words of hope and love as well. Proverbs twenty five eleven says, Like apples of gold and settings of silver is a word skillfully spoken at the right time. You see, the goal of your communication is to meet spiritual need in that other person. Whatever that need is. And this is to be done, look at verse 29. This is to be done so that, what does it say there? So that it may give grace to those who hear. So that it may give grace to those who hear. Said another way, the goal of your communication is to be redemptive. Use your words to build others up in the grace of God. Your speech must have it as its end again. One, to exalt Christ. And two, to help that other person love Jesus more. Right? Because every one of us has an eternal soul. We need to speak with eternity in view. Right? Even if the person isn't saved, we need to use our words to what? Wake up. Tell them the gospel, Right? To speak to them the words of truth that, that there is a Lord and a Savior who will either judge their sin or forgive it. And that they need to repent and believe, and the choice is theirs. Now, the other person may be a believer. Do they need Jesus still? Yes, we need Him always. We need to continue to to speak words to one another so that we would encourage one another to know Jesus more, to be closer to him, to love him more deeply and intimately, to follow him more closely. So here it is. This is the bottom line of communication. Every interaction we have with one another needs to help one another be more like Jesus. That's it. That's the bottom line of communication. That is the goal. That is the purpose. Every interaction we have is to help the other person be more like Jesus. Now think about that. If, if that really was your goal, is that as you enter the room and you remind yourself, okay, I need to, to speak what is, will be helpful to help them be more like Christ. If that was really your goal, how do you think that would affect that interaction? Do you think you would be listening more closely? Do you think you would be asking more questions and interacting with them and trying to understand where they're at? Do you think you would avoid using your words as weapons? If your goal truly was to help that other person love Jesus more, do you think you would show that love in what you said and how you said it? You won't use words as weapons, but as instruments of grace. Colossians 4.2 says, Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned as it were with salt, so that you may know how you should respond to each person. What does salt do? What does salt do? Preserves and it flavors. And we're grateful at times that it flavors. Right? You need to be a spiritually preserving influence in the lives of one another. And you need to add spiritual value and spiritual flavor to the conversation. Because I know, you know what? We all have them. We all have certain people in our life that they're just hard to talk to. Certain people in our life that we don't know what to say at times. Certain people that we are with, either live with them or know them, that they, you know, there just seems to be conflict a lot when we talk. Certain people that tempt you most, most often to say something hurtful or angry, some unwholesome word. If that's the case, you need to reevaluate what is your goal with that person when you're talking with them. What are you doing there? Your communication with them is not to advance your own agenda, is it? It's to advance God's agenda. And if you look at that person as, you know what? I've been sent here by God as an emissary. I'm on a mission to speak for him, to build this other person up in Christ. If you recognize that that is who you are, that's what you're supposed to be doing, then God's agenda would become more important than your own, wouldn't it? For example, again, say you've had a long day, you're looking forward to your husband coming home to help you. He comes into the door, walks straight to the couch, plops himself down, turns the TV on. No kiss, no hello, no nothing. What's the need of the moment, ladies? To go over there and badger the guy and say, Get up off the couch. I've been working all day. Get in the kitchen. Help me out. Is the need of the moment for you to give him the silent treatment the rest of the night? Is the need of the moment for you to tell him he's a lazy bum? And he is being a lazy bum. But is that the need of the moment? To call him the laziest, most unkind, most misunderstanding husband in all the universe? Do you think that's going to encourage him to get off the couch? It might, but for the wrong reasons. Right? The need of the moment. What is it? Because if you were to say those things, whose agenda are you advancing in that moment, ladies? Is it God's or your own? The need of the moment is gentle and gracious speech that moves him to consider spending time with the kids. Because, you know what, he does need to be shepherding his family. He does need to be spending time with you. He does need to be helping But you need to to come at the situation recognizing that's the need of the moment. And to build your husband up in Christ would be to come alongside him and give words that would encourage him, that would express to him how much you appreciate when he does lead you in family worship, when he does spend time with you and the kids. The need of the moment is for you to continue to serve with a gentle and quiet spirit. And I know that's not easy. Or let's say you catch your teenage son in an immoral relationship or stealing for someone or mouthing off to you? What's the need of the moment? To tell him how ungrateful he is and how much he doesn't deserve you as a parent? To, to tell him, you know, you have harmed, it, you've shamed our family, you've brought ruin to us. How dare you to lecture him on how it was when you were a boy? Is the need of the moment to call him a failure and ground him for three months? Whose agenda is that advancing? The need of the moment is redemption. God has graciously allowed you to learn about something your child is caught in. He's trapped by sin. And you can be on a mission to represent God for redemption, or you can go in there and destroy with your speech. God has given you that opportunity to go in a gracious way. You struggle with sin too, right? Did any parent in here ever not sin? Your kid needs to hear that. They need to understand. You know what? I understand. This is, You know, these are some things that I did when I was younger. I struggle with sin. It is hard. I still struggle with it. I need Jesus. And son, so do you. I love you. I don't want to see you go down this road. Speak redemptively. That is the need of the moment. Or perhaps your wife has treated you disrespectfully by her words or her actions. What's the need of the moment then, men? To to quote all the passages that tell her to submit? That always works well, doesn't it, ladies? Oh thank you, honey, I appreciate that. What was I thinking? I completely forgot about that. Thank you for pointing that out. Is the need of the moment, men, to tell her you've had enough of her disrespect and that things have better change right now or else Is the need of the moment to ignore her or to become embittered with her. Is the need of the moment to find ways to get even with her. To show vengeance. Again, men, whose agenda would that be advancing? Gods or your own? The need of the moment is to remember 1 Peter 3, 7. That tells husbands not to get even, but to get understanding. The need of the moment is to ask your wife how you can be a better leader in the home. Ask her if there's any ways that you tempt her. To struggle. Ask her if there's any ways that you tempt her to disrespect you. Ask for forgiveness for doing that. Take her on a date and talk to her. Communicate. Spend time together. Let her know of a gracious way how she can help you shepherd your family better. That's the need of the moment. Or say a fellow believer has sinned against you. What's the need of the moment then? To to tell everybody else in the church what they did? We seem to like to do that one sometimes. <laughs> Is the need of the moment to ignore them when you see them in the hall, to find some way to get back at them, to to wish that God would do to them what they've done to you? Is that the need of the moment, really? Whose agenda is that advancing? They need you to go to them and patiently and graciously let them know how you've wronged them and that you want to be reconciled to them. Perhaps they may not even realize that they sinned against you or they may not realize how much that... Sin has hurt you. And you need to say, "If your brother," or Jesus said, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. And if he listens to you, you've won your brother. That's redemptive communication. You see, the, the reason we respond to situations like this, the, these circumstances come up and we respond with unwholesome speech. The reason we do that is I think we seem to, to believe that God has put that other person in my life to make me happy. And when they violate that, we have a problem. Did God put people in your life to make you happy? To make you content? Is it their job and their responsibility that you be fulfilled? No. He put that other person in life, in your life, so that you would edify them. So that you would build them up. So that you could show just how much you love the Lord Jesus Christ by loving that person. And that love can be readily expressed by how you speak to them. And so my challenge to you is as you are coming home from work or as you are getting up in the morning or as you are even going into the next room, that you remind yourself your goal is simply not just to say something bad, not just to avoid saying something wrong. Your goal is to use your words to build them up in Christ. That you're telling yourself that. Every interaction, that you're preparing your heart. Paul notes that not only are we to just ditch destructive dialogue and supply strengthening speech, but we're also to give up grieving God. Verse 30, Paul says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. I find it very interesting that Paul inserts this passage here. I mean, all of of our sin affects God, right? All sin grieves the Spirit of God. But Paul chooses to bring that up here and now. And he connects verse 30 to verse 29 with the word and. It's not in the New American Standard translation. I I don't know why, but it should be there. In the Greek, the word chi, and. And don't grieve the Spirit of God. He's making a direct connection and correlation by the words that we speak and how they affect the Holy Spirit. It's so sobering to realize just one of my destructive, unwholesome words does what to the Holy Spirit? How does he feel about that? How does he feel? Grieved. Disappointed. Sad. Sorrowed. Pained. See, our words can not only hurt one another, they can hurt God. There's another place where we see this phrase, grieving the Holy Spirit. It's in Isaiah 63. So if you could turn there for a minute with me. Isaiah 63. There's a connection between that text and this one. Here in Isaiah, he's speaking to the people. The prophet Isaiah is reflecting upon God's goodness for Israel. And how they responded to him. Isaiah 63. will be looking at verse 7. I shall make mention of the loving kindness of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us, and the great goodness toward the house of Israel, which he granted them according to his compassion, and according to the multitude of his loving kindnesses. For he said, Surely they are my people, sons who will not deal falsely. So he became their savior. In all their affliction he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In His love and in His mercy He redeemed them and He lifted them and carried them all the days of old. But they rebelled and grieved His Holy Spirit. Therefore He turned Himself to become their enemy. He fought against them. See what Isaiah is doing here is he's describing the the goodness and kindness and mercy of God that He had shown them many, many times throughout the Exodus and throughout their history. And Isaiah describes that here, and then notice he says at the end, but they chose to rebel, and this caused the Holy Spirit of God to be grieved. To grieve. And I think Paul had this text in his mind as he's penning these words in Ephesians 4. As he's thinking about, again, what's the letter been about? The first three and a half chapters of Ephesians, what's it been focused on? God's goodness His mercy, His kindness, how He redeemed us, how He saved us, and all that He's done in pulling us out of bondage to sin. How the Spirit and the Son and the Father all have been at work in us. I think that's on Paul's mind to to remind us of that. Just as God was at work in His people in Israel, and they rebelled and caused Him grief, He's saying, let's not do the same thing in our words. For all that the Holy Spirit has done for us, Right, He's the one who transformed your heart. You know, If it weren't for the work of the Holy Spirit, you would not be saved. He's the one that opened your eyes to understand the gospel. The Holy Spirit is the person who transformed your heart, who granted you repentance, who sanctifies you and brings change about in your life as you follow Christ. It is the Holy Spirit doing the work within you every day, and He's the one that's going to make sure you make it all the way. Till the day of redemption, the Holy Spirit is your seal. He's your protection. He's your preserver. He's the one who has done all the work to bring you into fellowship with God the Father and God the Son and himself. And Paul's saying, how could you grieve him by what you say? How could we grieve the Holy Spirit of God One commentator noted, How ungrateful would they be if they now behave in a manner which grieves the very spirit by whom they have been marked as God's own. Do you want that hanging over your head? Take what you say seriously. Weigh your words carefully. Don't cause sorrow to the one who's given you life. Are we not careful what we say and how we say it when we have a guest in our home? Maybe if you invite somebody over today, I, I think generally speaking, you're going to be careful about the words that come out of your mouth. How much more so do we need to be attentive to the guest who's within our hearts? The Holy Spirit of God. I know there may be some here who who do not have the Holy Spirit in your life because you have never repented, you've never placed your trust in Christ, you've never made a decision to follow Him, you've never recognized your need for a Savior. Perhaps as we've been talking about communication, you've reflected on some of the words that you've said in your life. Some terrible things that you've committed with your mouth. Some terrible things that have come out. And I would just remind you again what Jesus said. But I tell you, every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for in the day of judgment. So friend, if you're standing before God, and He brings some of these things up that you've said to other people, hurtful, terrible, wicked things that you've said... And then he says, Jesus said, by your words, you'll be condemned. What are you going to say? Well, okay, you got me on that one. Yeah, I I know I I did that. I said that. But, friends, there's no but. There's nothing else that you could do. There's nothing else that you have done that's going to make up for the sin you've committed in your life. Every single one of us, as was said earlier in uh, someone in the baptism, we've all sinned against God. And we've all sinned with our words. We've all said things that Jesus says we'll stand condemned. And Jesus will be your judge or he'll be your savior. Jesus himself took upon himself all of our sins for those who repent and believe. Place their trust in Christ. And in that day when God looks at you and says you need to give an answer for all the words you've spoken... In Christ, we can say, because of what your son did, he took upon that guilt that I deserve. Yeah, I know I deserve it. I said those things. I did those things. And you should rightly send me into eternal destruction, God, because I rejected you and rebelled against you. But if you placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the son stands in front, says, I have taken the punishment for them. Don't let a moment pass by. Do you want a clean slate? Do you want to be able to stand before God forgiven? To have perfect fellowship, which is why he made you. He made you so that you can have that relationship with him. But your sin has brought about a problem. The hurtful, hateful, wicked speech that you've given in your life and the many other sins that you've committed has placed a barrier there. Don't let another moment pass. You can confess him right now. Say, Lord Jesus, forgive me. Give me life, forgive me for everything i 've said, for everything i 've done, for everything i 've thought, and God can do that and lift the guilt from you if you repent from that sin and place your trust in Christ well if there 's anything our passage this morning has shown us it is that words matter to God and they matter greatly. every word that you and I say is significant. so I want to close I want to give you a few practical illustrations or applications quickly. Just things to consider, remember, as you communicate with one another. And again, remember, the ultimate goal of our speech is to what? To help that person become more like Jesus, right? To love him more. And there are some practical principles that I have you consider in doing that. There are these, you can remember by these four words. Look, listen, linger, and limit. Look, listen, linger, and limit. Edifying communication happens by looking, looking to God for help. <laughs> David has a great prayer. Psalm 141 3. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. That is a great communication prayer. God, watch my mouth. Guard it. S- stick a sentry there and make sure I don't say anything that would dishonor you or tear down someone else. Memorize that prayer. Recite it often. Embed it in your heart. Lord, set a guard over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Secondly, edifying communication also happens when you listen. When you listen. Communication we often think of as talking. It is talking, but not just you. Proverbs 18.2 says, A fool does not delight in understanding, but only in revealing his own mind. Proverbs 18.13, He who gives an answer before he hears, it is folly and shame to him. Great practical instruction to be attentive, right? Not to be thinking about the next thing I want to say while the other person's talking. And you know we all do it, right? It's to to practice holding. No, you know what? I need to listen. I need to understand. And that may lengthen the conversation a little bit, but that's okay. That's okay. Half the time when we're offended, you know why? It's usually because we didn't hear the person rightly or hear them out because we weren't listening. Be patient, let them speak. Proverbs 18.15 says, The mind of the prudent acquires knowledge, and the ear of the wise seeks knowledge. Thirdly, edifying speech happens when you linger. You've heard the saying, right? Think before you speak. That's very wise. It's very biblical. Proverbs 29.20 says, Do you see a man who is hasty in his words? There's more hope for a fool than for that guy. Proverbs 15.28, The heart of the righteous ponders How to answer. But the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. And my favorite speech passage, Proverbs 27, 17. He who restrains his words has knowledge. And he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. Even a fool, when he closes his mouth, is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he's considered prudent. He's saying there is think before you speak. Linger. Before responding, don't blurt out the first thing that comes out of your mind. Pause. That will prevent you and catch you from saying many things that you'll be glad you didn't say. So we are to look, we are to linger, and we are to limit. Finally, edifying communications happens when you limit. Don't go on and on. Some of us, I think, have a problem with this where we dominate the conversation, where we do the most talking. Proverbs ten nineteen says, When there are many words, transgression is unavoidable, but he who restrains his lips is wise. For those of you that maybe have had that feedback, where, hey, you know what? Let me talk a little bit. Um, this is something you can practically think about. You know what? Come up with some questions in the conversation that you ask. That would stop you from talking and encourage the other person into the dialogue. Ask those around you, Do I talk too much? Be ready for the answer. <laughs> But communication, again, it's not just being understood, but seeking to understand. So in your speech, look, listen, linger, and limit. But most importantly, make your speech redemptive. That needs to be the foundation. Your goal is that I want to help this person love Jesus more. Help me, God, to do that. Lord, guard my mouth and keep me from saying something that would destroy or be destructive in that. May the Lord work in our hearts. As we consider one another more important than ourselves, we'll actively pursue this. Make your speech redemptive, brothers and sisters. And with that, let's pray. Lord, our words, God, we know are so important to you. If if in what we say, even a single word can bring grief to the Holy Spirit of God who has done so much for us. Lord, let us never entertain any any word let us never speak forth anything that would bring him grief lord help us to make our speech redemptive gracious speech words that seek to build up words that seek to honor christ and and to help the other person to know him and love him more god transform our communication transform our communication within our marriages within our families within one another Lord, so that you would be pleased, that you'd be honored, that, that Lord, we would enjoy our fellowship with you and one another with God-honoring speech. And we thank you for your kindness to us and how you speak to us, exactly what we need to hear. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.